thank you so much for trying out this non-drary fanfic episode. Uh, I'm actually really excited about it. I'm quite interested in the 1920s in Britain and Evelyn Waugh is such an interesting person. I mean, he's a piece of trash, right? He's awful, but um, kind of delightful to read about. So just to recap a little bit how this is going to go, I'm going to tell you about Evelyn Waugh's life and then I'm going to read a passage from Brideshead Revisited. You don't have to have read Brideshead Revisited to uh, understand the passage I'm going to read. I'm going to give context for it. It's a really funny, horrible, beautiful passage uh, about this like very insecure very um troubled gay guy in the 1920s who is very drunk and monologuing and I really like it uh so yeah hold on for that and uh then I'll talk a little bit about that passage after I read it Evelyn Waugh's real name was Arthur Evelyn Sinjin Waugh, but everyone called him Evelyn. And a fun fact about the name Evelyn is that if it's a boy, it's Evelyn, and if it's a girl, it's Evelyn. And Evelyn complicated matters later by actually marrying a woman called Evelyn, because why not? Evelyn Waugh grew up in Hampstead in London. So his father was a piece of trash as well. Everyone in the family was terrible. But his father really, really preferred Evelyn Waugh's older brother, Alec. And so did most people. Alec was a much happier kind of person. Um, As I said, all the wars were horrible. There's an anecdote about Evelyn Waugh's grandfather on a train and a wasp landed on his wife's forehead and he said, hold very still, and then squashed the wasp into her skin using the tip of his walking cane. And that's the main anecdote we have about Evelyn Waugh's grandfather. It's worth talking a little bit about Evelyn Waugh's brother Alec um, in a bit more detail because... Alec was the bane of Evelyn Waugh's existence. He made Evelyn Waugh miserable. Uh, Alec was older and when Alec was 17, he was expelled from Sherbourne School when it was discovered that he was in a homosexual relationship. So Sherbourne is um, maybe kind of a minor public school. In Britain, um, there's this weird thing where there's private schools and public schools and I don't totally understand the difference, but basically... Public schools are very fancy boarding schools that most of them were set up in the 1800s to train young, rich British boys how to go and rule the empire. There are a couple that are older than that. Uh, Like Eton is from, I don't know, like the 1200s or something. Harrow is really old as well. But most of them are really more from the 1800s. And Sherbourne was one of these um, public schools you know, if you're an upper class British person in 1920, you know, you go to this school. Um, I guess it's earlier than that, really, because uh, this is during the war that Alec War is expelled. Of course, the best revenge is success. So Alec War wrote a best-selling novel about all the things he hated about Sherbourne called The Loom of Youth. And he wrote it when he was 17. Uh, he was in training camp about to go fight in World War One. He fought at uh, the Battle of Passchendaele, which was this really, really nasty battle in the second half of World War One. So I think it was in 1917. Uh, it's the kind of battle where men were literally drowning in mud. Like you could, people would drown, like that's how you died. You would drown because the mud was so sinking that you would fall into it and never be able to swim your way out. And so that's the battle he was going off to go fight in. Pretty horrible. Um, And in training camp, he wrote this sort of revenge body style um, (laughs) novel about the school that had expelled him. I love The Loom of Youth. Um, It's a really... (laughs) I would not recommend you read it. It's not like 
really a good book, but it's so fun. It's about a young boy in boarding school and uh, that's kind of it. That's all that happens. But everyone in the country read it. Like if you read autobiographies from this time period, there's always a section in the autobiography where someone will be like, and here are my thoughts about the loom of youth. Uh, And so it was just like, it was the hot book of the time. So the basic premise of The Loom of Youth is that it criticised the boarding school system, although not for the reasons like you would think. You would think the criticism of the boarding school system would be that it's like horribly elitist. That's not really his problem. His problem is more that he thinks it doesn't make um, the people, like it doesn't give a good enough education to the people who are the ruling class, essentially. He, he thinks that it makes the ruling class boring. He has no problem with it creating a ruling class. That's not the issue. The issue is that uh, he thinks it makes everyone in boarding school boring. It's a very self-aggrandizing novel. Um, he frequently compares like his trials with getting onto the football team to like Julius Caesar conquering Gaul and quite seriously like he thinks they're the same um but it has a couple of really touching and beautiful moments particularly towards the end so at the end of the novel um world war one has broken out and some of the protagonist's friends have gone to go enlist and have started to die and there's this beautiful scene when one of his friends comes to visit the school after having been at the front and the friend is just as charming and cheerful as always but gordon who's the protagonist can tell something isn't right and so later he finally gets the friend alone and is like, well, what's actually going on with you? And the friend has been kind of saying all the normal party line things like, oh, it's jolly good fun to be dirty all the time and not have to have baths and to be away from mother. And the second they're alone, this is what the friend says, he says, we're done with fairy tales. It's bloody, utterly bloody. It will take at least 20 years to recover what we have lost and there won't be much fire left in you and me by then. So this is a book written by a 17-year-old in 1917 and the war's been going on for three years. And it it's about the experience of being a generation that has to graduate straight into a bloodbath. These boys are turning 18 in a world where the second you turn 18, you have to go and be slaughtered uh, in these like unbelievably awful ways for a war that it's increasingly obvious is futile and damaging, you know, your country forever. So uh, I think it it kind of hovers at the edges of the book. It's, it's, it's very interesting. And all of that would have been fine to write. Uh, by 1917, it was more or less okay to write slightly subversive uh, war literature, right? In the early days of the war, you were supposed to write heroic poems about how great war was. But um, the tides had turned on patriotism by around, basically the Battle of the Somme in 1916 changes that. The Battle of the Somme, of course, uh, is sort of widely considered um, Britain's greatest military disaster. You had 60,000 casualties in one day. And the battle went on for like a month. So really, really uh, horrible battle where they, they, I mean, that first day, I think they gained like <laughs> a few meters and that's how many people they had to lose to get that. I mean, it was just, a, it was a disaster. So after the Battle of the Somme, I think it was much harder for anyone in Britain to really feel as if they could be gun-ho and cheery about the war. You kind of, the tides are turned. That's, from then on, you start getting like Siegfried Sassoon's war poetry and Wilfred Owen's war poetry, uh, which is much more realistic, much more gritty, much more glum. And so Alec War's depiction of, uh, you know, these boys who suddenly are, kind of uncertain about whether they want to go fight in the war that that's not particularly scandalous what was scandalous was uh the depiction of sexuality in this boarding school and 
it's actually fairly blink and you'll miss it. Like, unless you know that it's there, it's pretty easy to miss the fact that, like, everyone at this school is gay and fucking each other. Um, th- I mean, that's, I'm overstating it, but it it is, it is, it is interesting. He's pretty candid about it. Um, for instance, there's a chapter called Romance. And in the chapter called Romance, the protagonist, Gordon, uh, describes his friendship with a very handsome young boy called Morecambe. Then, when the long evenings came, with Morecambe sitting in the game study, his face flushed with the glow of the leaping fire, talking of Keats and Shelley, himself a poem, Gordon used to wonder how he could ever have wished to dabble in ugly things, out of his cowardice to face the truth. So I think that line's really beautiful, um, the idea of Morecambe himself a poem he's talking about poetry but he himself is the poetry um and this is about as close as alec ever gets to explicitly saying gordon was making out with boys but earlier in the book uh one of his friends is expelled when he commits the one unforgivable sin to be found out so essentially his friend uh was in a homosexual relationship was caught and was expelled and all of the boys in the year are are kind of sickened by this um they kind of all agree that it's wrong what happened that he was expelled because it's common enough because enough people are doing this that it seems unfair that you know it's only if you get caught that you get expelled and of course i'm sure alec wall was writing from experience on this because of course he was the one in his school who had committed the unforgivable sin he was the one who had been caught I'm not sure I'd recommend The Loom of Youth because, as I said, it it really is mainly descriptions of football matches. But the point is that it caused a total scandal when it came out because it really does give the impression that homosexuality was like ubiquitous at these schools. It was like almost everyone gave it a go at some point. And that was pretty scandalous at the time. It also completely burned all bridges between the wars and Sherburn, the school, the prestigious boarding school. Um, Because obviously... Everyone knew that Alec was writing about Sherbin. It was like transparently obvious. And Sherbin was hideously embarrassed by this book. Now, the problem is that this book comes out when Evelyn Wall was 14, which is exactly the age when he was supposed to go start at Sherbin. And he'd been looking forward to that for ages. And of course, Sherbin refused to let him come to the school because they were like, the last Wall who came here wrote a gay tell all. So, no. <laughs> Evelyn Waugh had done all right at his local day school. He was very clever and writerly, and he loved to bully the smaller and weaker boys. Uh, He was really good at that. He bullied Cecil Beaton, for example. Um, Cecil Beaton later turned out to be an extremely famous photographer. He's the photographer of the bright young things in the 1920s. Like all the famous photos of hot young people in the 1920s in Britain are by him. He was friends with everyone. And then later he got very involved in costume design in Hollywood musicals. He did the costumes for My Fair Lady. Anyway, Cecil Beaton never forgave Evelyn Waugh for his cruelty as a child. And it probably didn't help that it's not as if Evelyn Waugh got any less cruel as he got older. But however much Evelyn Waugh liked hanging out at his school and bullying people like Cecil Beaton, he really wanted to go to Sherbin. And it devastated him that he couldn't go because of his brother's nationally public gay exploits. And instead of getting to go to Sherbin, uh, Waugh was sent to a school called Lansing instead, which Waugh felt was a much worse school. Um, he was insecure about it for basically forever. Lansing, by the way, still a public school, still very posh, still very fancy, very expensive, etc. But uh, for whatever reason, to Evelyn War, it made a huge difference to his self-worth. But he did all right at Lansing. He was stylish, he was clever, and he was cruel. 
While the other boys joined the cadet club in order to prepare to go fight in World War One, he formed the corpse club for boys who were bored stiff, which is a pretty subversive thing to do if you think about the fact that a third of every graduating year was being slaughtered in the trenches. He also tried to write his own school novel and he gave up after 5,000 words. It was hard to compete with the loom of youth. So basically he spent his entire teenage years completely overshadowed by his already very famous writer brother. In 1922, he went to Hartford College, Oxford. Hartford College is nice. It's got some pretty buildings, but it's small and it's not very grand, especially compared to a lot of other Oxford colleges. And this is exactly the sort of thing that bothered Evelyn Waugh. In his second year, however, he made friends with two glamorous young men, Harold Acton and Brian Howard. They were both very, very clever, very rich and very gay, and war fell completely under their spell. They like opened a door in his head and he started dating men and he joined their fashionable set, which was called the Hypocrites Club. And the Hypocrites Club um, sort of was a foundation for a lot of the British um, 1920s, sort of roaring 20s uh, society. It was a bunch of very um, effeminate very literary, mainly queer young men who just wanted to scandalise people. And it didn't last that long. It it was shut down like within about two years when they hosted a kind of slutty nuns-themed fancy dress party. And all the members dressed up as nuns and choir boys and wore lipstick and it was very shocking. They used to do things like have parties um, within church, like inside churches. They'd have these sort of lecherous queer parties or... um, I think Brian Howard once famously, or maybe it was Harold Acton, one of those two famously got a megaphone and recited T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland from the roof of one of the colleges. Or they used to, um, they had like a, there was a college dean they didn't get on with and they used to shout, the college dean sleeps with men. And he didn't like that at all. The problem was, obviously, the more exciting even more social life became, the less he cared about his lessons. And so he developed a long-lasting feud with his tutor, who was a hapless man named Crotwell, who probably just wanted War to turn in some essays occasionally. And War <laughs> retaliated by um, <laughs> when he started writing novels. In like most of his early novels, there's always a really embarrassing, awful, humiliating character called Crotwell, which is so petty. By 1924, Evelyn War had lost his scholarship. He got a third in his exams. Um, the English exam system for universities, so um, a first is really, really good. Great. Um, 2-1, fine. Good. 2-2, depending on what subject you're getting on, it can be more or less respectable. If you're doing a humanities subject at a place like Oxford, getting a 2-2 is is, uh, a little hard to do, I think. Um, They don't give them out very often. Evelyn Waugh manages to get a third, which is frankly impressive. Um, And yeah, so he had to leave the university without a degree. Uh, And in the age-old manner of all hopeless 21-year-olds, he enrolled into an art school, partied too hard, then dropped out because he'd run out of money. So he took a job teaching at a shabby boarding school in Wales, and he got to work on his novel. He was always trying to write novels, right? I mean, his older brother, (laughs) who his father actually loves, who's already incredibly famous, and who's a war veteran, has written tons of novels. So why can't he write one, right? It's embarrassing. And so finally he thought he had something pretty promising. And so he sent it to his friend whose opinion he respected the most, which was Harold Acton. Acton uh, wrote back really dismissively. He was like, this is unimpressive. 
and Wall was horrified. He burnt the manuscript and tried to kill himself. He took off all his clothes and he put them on a pile on the beach with a suicide note. And then he walked out into the sea like something out of Kate Chopin. I think he probably felt very um, poetic. Unfortunately, he was stung by a jellyfish. And this so discouraged him that he completely gave up on the whole suicide attempt. So he went back. For the next few years, he kind of flounced around teaching at various schools, trying and failing to be a famous writer. And in 1927, when he was 24, he met his future wife, Evelyn Gardner, the daughter of Lord and Lady Berkeley. And maybe I'm being unfair to war, but I think he was psyched at the prospect of marrying into the aristocracy. I think that would have been a huge, huge point in uh, Evelyn's favour. And so they got engaged almost immediately, even though Evelyn's par- parents didn't approve. Um, Evelyn, of course, to keep their track, Evelyn is um, his wife. Evelyn is the writer. Their friends called them he Evelyn and she Evelyn. <laughs> um, and they got married and they had no money, and they lived in Islington on about four pounds a week. Then, Evelyn Wall published his first novel, which is called Decline and Fall. It's about a miserable idiot who leaves Oxford to go teach at a boys' boarding school. Where did he come up with his ideas? (laughs) It's very, very funny and silly and bleak. And this is a really important characteristic of Evelyn Wall's writing, is that he's funny and bleak at once. And I think it's so... uh, I I don't know, it's such an unusual combination... um, and, and so just sort of gloriously, depressingly beautiful. So Decline and Fall isn't considered one of his best novels. Um, the two best novels, the ones that everyone thinks are his kind of masterpieces, are Bride's Head Revisited and A Handful of Dust. But Decline and Fall is much less upsetting than either of those two novels, so I like it because of that. And it was um, a critical success. Uh, the critics all loved it. And so for a second, Evelyn Wall was happy. And then his wife told him that she was cheating on him with one of their friends. And so (laughs) now he wasn't happy anymore. It came out of nowhere. He had no idea. It was a huge shock. They got divorced in 1929. They'd been married for two years and war was 26. I keep talking about the British 1920s. Uh, That's because it has a very different character, I think, from the American 1920s. Um, When you think Roaring Twenties, you're thinking of Great Gatsby, uh, maybe the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, You're really thinking of the American 1920s. The British 1920s is, uh, it feels like the focus is on the aristocracy. It feels kind of like a, a, a last hurrah of British empire and aristocracy uh, before everything kind of comes crashing down. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't feel, I mean, it doesn't feel as if it's as money-based as it is class-based, if that makes sense. And and also it's highly tied in with literature. Um, I mean, I guess the American 1920s is too. But what's uh, notable about um, the 1920s, at least in Britain, is that the peak of the 1920s is 1927, right? It's all kind of gearing up to 1927. The parties get wilder and wilder. The sort of gags get stranger. The newspaper articles get more and more crazed. And then it kind of starts to wind down bad things start happening to the partiers and then 1929 you have uh the depression the great depression that hits in america first and uh then the 30s obviously are just very tense because it's the lead up to world war ii so after about 1927 things start to turn away from the kind of party decade in 1930 
Waugh had his first big commercial success with uh, a book called Vile Bodies, which is a book I've actually already recommended. I recommended it on the um, bonus episode for Can I Tell You Something? Because it's one of the best books I've ever read about partying. Um, It's about how partying is actually secretly kind of depressing. And that same year, he converted to Catholicism. There's kind of too much to say about Evelyn Waugh and Catholicism, and I don't really want to go deep into it. Uh, To give you context, in case you don't know, um, Britain is a Protestant country. Um, It's been Protestant since the 1500s. And uh, it's Church of England, which is sort of kind of half-hearted Protestant. It's aesthetically pretty Catholic, but um, emotionally very Protestant. And um, Catholics had been like majorly oppressed in Britain until like the mid 1800s at least like for a long time if you were a catholic you couldn't go to university you couldn't vote you couldn't have certain jobs you couldn't live within 10 miles of london like it was you know it was bad right so i think maybe there was something a little um transgressive about converting to catholicism because it was actually only fairly recently that it had become uh you know acceptable in any way and it was still kind of a bit dodgy There's also a very strong link within the British upper classes between Catholicism and homosexuality. And I don't really know why. I read a JSTOR paper about it, but um, I've kind of forgotten it all. I think it was something to do with the fact that Catholicism was seen as a sort of beautiful way to be other. It was sort of tied in with romanticism and the Gothic. And it was like, ooh, it's different, but magical. Um, Like being gay, I think, was the vibe. Um... And also, and this is going to weigh very heavily with Evelyn Waugh, he had somehow gotten in with a kind of pocket of very, very fancy upper class Catholic families. And they were very cliquey uh, and posh. And I think he wanted to be part of that because he was he was really very middle class and he did not want to be middle class. He wanted to be upper class. All this said, I also think he was just very depressive and God gave him hope. So in 1949, he said that life was unintelligible and unendurable without God. Someone once asked him, I think it was Nancy Mitford. She was like, how can you be such an awful person if you're a Catholic? And he said, well, think how awful I would be if I wasn't a Catholic. I'm basically going to speed through the 1930s. Uh, He travelled quite a bit in Africa. He spent some time in Ethiopia and the Congo and he travelled through the British colonies in East Africa. Uh, Actually, most of the places he travelled through were colonies because uh, Europe had (laughs) taken over uh, the world. Um, And he wrote a book that I haven't read because it just looks so racist. It's called Black Mischief. It's about a fictional African country trying to modernise. Ethiopia was like fighting off Italy in this time period um, and he seemed to be more on the Italian side which is a frankly pretty mad position to take because not only was Ethiopia like very cool and had like a great leader etc in this time period but also Italy was like a rising fascist power but um, to be honest with you even more was pretty fascist he was quite on board with rising fascist powers in Italy. He also, in this decade, wrote his second most famous novel, A Handful of Dust. And A Handful of Dust is just uh, incredibly bleak. I'm not going to go into it. It's really good, but I don't like it. It's just too horrid. He also fell in love with his ex-wife's cousin, who was 17. But in the Catholic Church, uh, you like can't really get divorces. So he had to go back and then get his divorce, in fact, annulled like to get his marriage annulled rather than divorced so the difference between an annulment and a divorce um a divorce is like 
okay, yeah, we don't want to be married anymore. An annulment is like, no, we never were married. It's it's as if I'm an unmarried person who has never been married. Uh, and you have to find some reason. So he married um, this new woman, Laura, uh, when she was 21. Uh, and her father, by the way, just a brief sidetrack, uh, he was a famous explorer and he was twice offered the throne of Albania. Just a fun fact. I wish people would offer me thrones. So in 1937, they got married. And in 1939, World War II broke out. I read this anecdote somewhere, but I couldn't find it again. So take it with a grain of salt. Apparently, one time, Alec and Evelyn Waugh both came back from fighting in World War II on leave at the same time. And they went back to their father's house. And their father had put up a big banner that said, Welcome home, Alec. <laughs> Which is just so horrible. Although Evelyn Waugh was very brave, he was also a total pain. So he did pretty badly in the army. Uh, he was just like a nightmare to direct. Um, so eventually he damaged his leg while doing parachute training and he took three months off to recover and to write. And the result was his most famous book. Brideshead revisited The Sacred and Profane Memories of Captain Charles Ryder. So that long subtitle should give away the fact that this book is like massively about Catholicism. But it's also about a bunch of things and that's something I like about it is that you can read it through so many different lenses I feel like you could read it six different times looking for six different things and find six different answers so it's a very kind of dense um yeah thematically dense book so this is probably a good place for me to summarize the plot of Brideshead Revisited so it begins in World War II in the 1940s Captain Charles Ryder is stationed at Brideshead Castle which has been commandeered by the troops and it makes him feel weird to be there because memories. And we cut back to the 1920s when middle-class Charles Ryder shows up at Oxford and is disappointed. He thought he would find magic, but everyone's boring and normal. That is, until one day, a very beautiful drunken lord stumbles into his bedroom and throws up on his furniture. And that lord is Lord Sebastian Flight, who grew up at Brideshead Castle. So from that moment, uh, they become, you know close are they dating it's not explicit but frankly i think you have to try pretty hard to see their friendship as platonic and by the way critics have tried pretty hard to see their friendship as platonic but it's like they wear each other's clothes people call them fairies later he falls in love with sebastian's sister and talks about how sebastian's sister is so beautiful because she looks just like sebastian sebastian's sister at one point says did you love sebastian and charles Ryder is like yeah obviously he was the person who came he was the forerunner he says i, I the epilogue is just a sloppy blowjob <laughs> it's <laughs> right it's not explicit but i just think i think it it's hard to argue that they're just friends Anyway, most sources say that Sebastian Flight was based on the two young men that Wall was widely thought to have dated when he was at Oxford. So, yeah, I, this, that's my take anyway. So Sebastian is very pretty and very charming and very sweet. And he carries a little teddy bear with him everywhere. Uh, the teddy bear is called Aloysius. Um, the, the bear was actually inspired by uh, Evelyn Waugh's friend John Betjeman, who was a famous poet and who brought his teddy bear to Oxford with him. And the bear was called Archibald Ormsby Gore, because <laughs> everyone in the 1920s was pretentious as hell. However sweet and charming Sebastian is, he's also deeply troubled. And it's kind of charming when he's 19 and drinks a little too much. But by the time he's in his mid-20s, it's just depressing. So, like most of War's novels, Brideshead is about the languorous decadence of youth collapsing into disaster and misery. 
It's about rot and decay. I'm not really going to go into the whole plot of the book, which spans 20 years and deals with a million different themes. Uh, the extract I'm reading from is from the first and most famous section of the book. It's called Et in Arcadia Echo. That's the section. Um, and in this section, Charles Ryder falls in love with Sebastian, meets all of Sebastian's glamorous friends, and sets himself up to feel wistful for the rest of his life. The title of this section, Et in Arcadia Ego, is Latin for Even in Arcadia, There I Am. So in pastoral literature, Arcadia is kind of like the Greek Garden of Eden. It's sort of magical and lovely and perfect. It's, it's this sort of like pre-fall state. Um, shepherdesses, you know. But even in Arcadia, death lurks. That's what et in Arcadia ego means, right? It's, um, the, it's from a painting um, in the Louvre where death is, saying, is speaking. He's saying, even in Arcadia, there I am. And death kind of hovers at the margins of all the most wonderful moments. Um, and as Charles Ryder falls in love and is dazzled by the splendour and beauty of Sebastian and Sebastian's glamorous family in Brideshead Castle, death lurks nearby. And the whole book is just doomed from the start because World War II is coming and Sebastian is an alcoholic and everyone is gay, but that's illegal. But it's in this magical chapter that Charles Ryder meets Anthony Blanche, who's my favourite character in the book. Anthony Blanche is not a main character by any means. He's one of Sebastian's friends. Uh, he was based on a few different people, but um, predominantly on Harold Acton and Brian Howard, the um, you know the kind of glamorous uh, literate, literary homosexuals that Evelyn Waugh had become friends with when he first got to Oxford. Anthony Blanche is like he's slippery he's really hard to pin down he's maybe mixed race sort of unclear he's spanish or portuguese or just somehow other he's not quite an englishman he calls himself um ethnic slurs um and he's the most overtly homosexual character in the book right he's very very open about that and he's extremely charming yet somehow quite unappealing and I think maybe part of this is that he seems to see the truth beneath everything. Most of the other characters kind of fall for spells very easily. But Anthony Blanche kind of sees things as they are. And it's, it's almost like that's unwelcome to Charles Ryder. Charles Ryder doesn't want to see things as they are. Uh, and ultimately, Charles Ryder converts to Catholicism, which maybe is another way of avoiding seeing things as they are. And Anthony Blanche is also just incredibly insecure, but it comes out in these strange, unpredictable ways. And he's obsessed with Sebastian. He loves Sebastian and he hates Sebastian. And he's also the only person in the novel who understands Charles as an artist, because Charles is a painter and no one ever takes Charles seriously, except for Anthony Blanche, who really sees his art. But despite that, Charles kind of hates Anthony Blanche, sort of despises him. So that's not really very clear. It's almost as if Charles doesn't want to be seen. But really what I love most about Anthony Blanche is just that he's, he's funny and he's nasty and he's hurting. And the passage I'm going to read, I think, really demonstrates this. Um, in this passage, he takes Charles Ryder out for dinner and tells him about a instance of homophobic bullying that he has just gone through. And he tells it in this kind of funny, haha, isn't it amusing sort of way. And then spends the rest of the evening talking about Sebastian and basically chatting shit about Sebastian and trying to turn Charles against Sebastian. And the two things seem as if they're not connected, but they are. Because Sebastian's never bullied for being gay. In fact, Sebastian's never really bullied for anything. He gets away with everything. And that is completely bewildering to Anthony Blanche. And so it's kind of, these two ideas are linked. Him feeling angry at Sebastian and him feeling hurt at being bullied. 
they they kind of go together and um it's also hurtful to him that he and sebastian are really close and yet sebastian is perfectly happy to be close friends with the same men who go out of their way to torture poor anthony blanche and it feels like this kind of betrayal i think and he just wants an ally he wants charles Ryder to be his ally against sebastian but Charles Ryder is never going to pick Anthony Blanche ever, Sebastian. So this whole passage is just Anthony Blanche trying to hide his unhappiness with like bitchy humour and cruelty. And yet he does such a bad job of hiding how upset he is. Like he's so obviously pained. I just think it's it's a beautifully crafted vignette of a damaged, troubled, intelligent person. Um, and it's just, it's, I think it's my favourite part of the whole book. Heads up that in this passage, Anthony Blanche uses an ethnic slur on himself. And also he uses a word that sounds like the N-word, but actually is etymologically completely unrelated. So the passage I'm going to read is from the Et in Arcadia Ego section. And it's a scene in which Anthony Blanche takes Charles out for dinner. On the day after Jasper's grand remonstrance, I received another, in different terms, and from an unexpected source. All the term I had been seeing rather more of Antony Blanche than my liking for him warranted. I lived now among his friends, but our frequent meetings were more of his choosing than mine, for I held him in considerable awe. In years, he was barely my senior, but he seemed then to be burdened with the experience of the wandering Jew. He was indeed a nomad of no nationality. An attempt had been made in his childhood to make an Englishman of him. He was two years at Eton. Then, in the middle of the war, he had defied the submarines, rejoined his mother in the Argentine, and a clever and audacious schoolboy was added to the valet, the maid, the two chauffeurs, the Pekingese, and the second husband. Criss-cross about the world he travelled with them, waxing in wickedness like a Hogarthian page boy. When peace came, they returned to Europe, to hotels and furnished villas, spas, casinos, and bathing beaches. At the age of fifteen, for a wager... He was disguised as a girl and taken to play at the big table in the jockey club at Buenos Aires. He dined with Proust and Guide and was on closer terms with Cocteau and Diaghilev. Furbank sent him his novels with fervent inscriptions. He had aroused three irreconcilable feuds in Capri. By his own account, he had practised black art in Chefalu and had been cured of drug-taking in California and of an Oedipus complex in Vienna. At times, we all seemed children beside him. At most times, but not always for there was a bluster and zest in Antony which the rest of us had shed somewhere in our more leisured adolescence, on the playing field or in the schoolroom. His vices flourished less in the pursuit of pleasure than in the wish to shock, and in the midst of his polished exhibitions I was often reminded of an urchin I had once seen in Naples, capering derisively with obscene, unambiguous gestures before a party of English tourists. As he told the tale of his evening at the gaming table, one could see in the roll of his eyes just how he had glanced covertly over the dwindling pile of chips at his stepfather's party. While we had been rolling one another in the mud at football and gorging ourselves with crumpets, Antony had helped oil fading beauties on subtropical sands and had sipped his aperitif in smart little bars so that the savage we had tamed was still rampant in him. He was cruel, too, in the wanton, insect-maiming manner of the very young, and fearless like a little boy, charging head down, small fists whirling at the school prefect. He asked me to dinner, and I was a little disconcerted to find that we were to dine alone. "'We are going to tame,' he said. "'There is a delightful hotel there which luckily doesn't appeal to the Bullingdon. "'We will drink Rhine wine and imagine ourselves... where?' 
not on a jaunt with jorks, anyway. But first, we will have our aperitif. At the George Bar, he ordered, Four Alexandra cocktails, please. Ranged them before him with a loud, Yum, yum, which drew every eye outraged upon him. I expect you would prefer sherry, but, my dear Charles, you're not going to have sherry. Isn't this a delicious concoction? Oh, you don't like it? Then I will drink it for you. One, two, three, four, down the red lane they go. How the students stare. And he led me out to the waiting motor car. I hope we shall find no undergraduates there. I am a little out of sympathy with them at the moment. You heard about their treatment of me on Thursday. It was too naughty. Luckily I was wearing my oldest pyjamas, and it was an evening of oppressive heat, or I might have been seriously cross. Antony had a habit of putting his face near one when he spoke. The sweet and creamy cocktail had tainted his breath. I leaned away from him in the corner of the hired car. Picture me, my dear, alone and studious. I had just bought a rather forbidding book called Antic Hay, which I knew I must read before going to Garsington on Sunday, because everyone was bound to talk about it, and it's so banal saying you have not read the book of the moment if you haven't. The solution, I suppose, is not to go to Garsington, but that didn't occur to me until this moment. So, my dear, I had an omelette and a peach and a bottle of Vichy water and put on my pyjamas and settled down to read. I must say, my thoughts wandered, but I kept turning the pages and watching the light fade, which in Peckwater, my dear, is quite an experience. As darkness falls, the stone seems positively to decay under one's eyes. I was reminded of some of those leprous facades in the Vieux Peur at Marseilles, until suddenly I was disturbed by such a bawling and caterwauling as you never heard, and there, down in the little piazza, I saw a mob of about twenty terrible young men, and do you know what they were chanting? We want Blanche! We want Blanche! In a kind of litany. Such a public declaration. Well, I saw it was all up with Mr Huxley for the evening, and I must say I had reached a point of tedium when any interruption was welcome. I was stirred by the bellows, but do you know, the louder they shouted, the shyer they seemed. They kept saying, where's Boy? He's Boy Mulcaster's friend. Boy must bring him down. Of course you've met Boy. He's always popping in and out of dear Sebastian's rooms. He's everything we Dagos expect of an English lord. A great party, I can assure you. All the young ladies in London are after him. He's very hoity-toity with them, I'm told. My dear, he's scared stiff. A great oaf. That's Mulcaster. And what's more, my dear, a cad. He came to Le Touquet at Easter, and in some extraordinary way I seem to have asked him to stay. He lost some infinitesimal sum at cards, and as a result expected me to pay for all of his treats. Well, Mulcaster was in this party. I could see his ungainly form shuffling about below, and hear him saying, It's no good, he's out, let's go back out and have a drink. So then I put my head out of the window and called to him, Good evening, Mulcaster, old sponge and toady. Are you lurking among the hobbledy-hoys? Have you come to repay me for the three hundred francs I lent you for the poor drab you picked up in the casino? It was a niggardly sum for her trouble, and what trouble, Mulcaster? Come up and pay me, you poor hooligan. That, my dear, seemed to put a little life into them, and up the stairs they came, clattering. About six of them came into my room. The rest stood mouthing outside. My dear, they looked too extraordinary. They had been having one of their ridiculous club dinners, and they were all wearing coloured tailcoats, a sort of livery. My dears, I said to them, you look like a lot of most disorderly footmen. 
Then one of them, rather a juicy little piece, accused me of unnatural vices. My dear, I said, I may be inverted, but I am not insatiable. Come back when you are alone. Then they began to blaspheme in a very shocking manner, and suddenly I too began to be annoyed. Rarely, I thought, when I think of all the hullabaloo there was when I was seventeen, and the Duc de Vincennes, old Armand, of course, not Philippe, challenged me to a duel for an affair of the heart, and very much more than the heart, I assure you, with the Duchess, Stephanie, of course, not old Poppy. Now, to submit to impertinence from these pimply, tipsy virgins. Well, I gave up the light bantering tone and let myself be just a little offensive. Then they began saying, get hold of him, put him in mercury. Now, as you know, I have two sculptures by Brancusi and several pretty things, and I did not want them to start getting rough, so I said, specifically, Dear sweet Claude Hoppers, if you knew anything of sexual psychology, you would know that nothing could give me keener pleasure than to be manhandled by you meaty boys. It would be an ecstasy of the very naughtiest kind, so if any of you wishes to be my partner in joy, come and seize me. If, on the other hand, you simply wish to satisfy some obscure and less easily classified libido and see me bathe, come with me quietly, dear louts, to the fountain. Do you know, they all looked a little foolish at that. I walked down with them, and no one came within a yard of me. Then I got into the fountain, and, you know, it was really most refreshing, so I sported there a little while and struck some attitudes until they turned about and walked sulkily home, and I heard Boy Mulcaster saying, Anyway, we did put him in mercury. You know, Charles, that is just what they'll be saying in thirty years' time. When they're all married to scraggy little women like hens and have cretinous porcine sons like themselves getting drunk at the same club dinner in the same coloured coats, they'll still say, when my name's mentioned, we put him in Mercury one night, and their barnyard daughters will snigger and think their father was quite a dog in his day, and what a pity he's grown so dull. Oh, la fatigue du nord. It was not, I knew, the first time Antony had been ducked. But the incident seemed much on his mind, for he reverted to it again at dinner. Now, you can't imagine an unpleasantness like that happening to Sebastian, can you? No, I said. I could not. No, Sebastian has charm. He held up his glass of hock to the candlelight and repeated, Such charm. Do you know, I went round to call on Sebastian next day. I thought the tale of my evening's adventures might amuse him. And what do you think I found? Besides, of course, his amusing toy bear. Mulcaster and two of his cronies of the night before. They looked very foolish, and Sebastian, as composed as Mrs. Ponsonsby, Tomkins in Punch, said, You know Lord Mulcaster, of course. And the oafs said, Oh, we just came to see how Aloysius was, for they find the toy bear just as amusing as we do. Or, shall I hint, just a teeny bit more. So off they went. And I said, Sebastian, do you realise that those sycophantic slugs insulted me last night, and but for the warmth of the weather, might have given me a severe cold? And he said, poor things, I expect they were drunk. He has a kind word for everyone, you see. He has such charm. I can see he has completely captivated you, my dear Charles. Well, I'm not surprised. Of course, you haven't known him as long as I have. I was at school with him... You wouldn't believe it, but in those days people used to say he was a little bitch. Just a few unkind boys who knew him well. Everyone in Pop liked him, of course, and all the masters. I expect it was really that they were jealous of him. He never seemed to get into trouble. 
The rest of us were constantly being beaten in the most savage way, on the most frivolous pretexts, but never Sebastian. He was the only boy in my house who was never beaten at all. I can see him now at the age of fifteen. He never had spots, you know. All the other boys were spotty. Boy Mulcaster was positively scrofulous. But not Sebastian. Or did he have one, rather a stubborn one, at the back of his neck? I think now that he did. Narcissus, with one pustule. He and I were both Catholics, so we used to go to Mass together. He used to spend such a time in the confessional, I used to wonder what he had to say, because he never did anything wrong, never quite, or at least, he never got punished. Perhaps he was just being charming through the grill. I left under what is called a cloud, you know. I can't think why it is called that. It seems to me a glare of unwelcome light. The process involved a series of harrowing interviews with my tutor. It was disconcerting to find how observant that mild old man proved to be. The things he knew about me, which I thought no one, except possibly Sebastian, knew. It was a lesson never to trust mild old men, or charming schoolboys, which... Shall we have another bottle of this wine, or of something different? Something different, some bloody old burgundy, eh? You see, Charles, I understand all your tastes. You must come to France with me and drink the wine. We will go at the vintage. I will take you to stay at the Vincennes. It is all made up with them now, and he has the finest wine in France, he and the Prince de Potelon. I will take you there, too. I think they would amuse you, and, of course, they would love you. I want to introduce you to a lot of my friends. I have told Cocteau about you. He is all agog. You see, my dear Charles, you're that very rare thing, an artist. Oh, yes, you must not look bashful. Behind that cold English phlegmatic exterior, you are an artist. I have seen those little drawings you keep hidden away in your room. They are exquisite. And you, dear Charles, if you will understand me, are not exquisite, but not at all. Artists are not exquisite. I am. Sebastian, in a kind of way, is exquisite, but the artist is an eternal type. Solid, purposeful, observant, and beneath it all, passionate, eh, Charles? But who recognises you? The other day I was speaking to Sebastian about you, and I said, But you know Charles is an artist. He draws like a young Ingres. And do you know what Sebastian said? Yes, Aloysius draws very prettily too, but of course he's rather more modern. So charming. So amusing. Of course, those that have charm don't really need brains. Stephanie de Vincennes really tickled me four years ago. My dear, I even used the same coloured varnish for my toenails. I used her words and lit my cigarette in the same way, and spoke with her tone on the telephone so that the Duke used to carry on long and intimate conversations with me, thinking I was her. It was largely that which put his mind on pistol and sabres in such an old-fashioned manner. My stepfather thought it an excellent education for me. He thought it would make me grow out of what he calls my English habits. Poor man, he is very South American. I never heard anyone speak an ill word of Stephanie except the Duke, and she, my dear, is positively cretinous. Antony had lost his stammer in the deep waters of his old romance. It came floating back to him momentarily, with the coffee and the liqueurs. Real grain chartreuse made before the expulsion of the monks. There are five distinct tastes as it trickles over the tongue. It is like swallowing a spectrum. Do you wish Sebastian was with us? Of course you do. Do I? I wonder. How our thoughts do run on that little bundle of charm, to be sure— I think you must be mesmerising me, Charles. I bring you here, at very considerable expense, my dear, simply to talk about myself, and I find I talk of no one except Sebastian. 
It's odd, because there's really no mystery about him, except how he came to be born of such a very sinister family. I forget if you know his family. I don't suppose he'll ever let you meet them. He's far too clever. They're quite, quite gruesome. Do you ever feel as if there is something a teeny bit gruesome about Sebastian? No, perhaps I imagine it. It's simply that he looks so like the rest of them sometimes. There's Brideshead, who's something archaic out of a cave that's been sealed for centuries. He has the face as though an Aztec sculptor had attempted a portrait of Sebastian. He's a learned bigot, a ceremonious barbarian, a snowbound llama. Well, anything you like. And Julia, you know what she looks like. Who could help it? Her photograph appears as regularly in the illustrated papers as the advertisements for Beecham's pills. A face of flawless Florentine quattrocento beauty. Almost anyone else with those looks would have been tempted to become artistic. Not Lady Julia. She's as smart as... Well, as smart as Stephanie. Nothing greenery-yallery about her. So gay, so correct, so unaffected. I wonder if she's incestuous. I doubt it. All she wants is power. There ought to be an inquisition especially set up to burn her. There's another sister, too, I believe, in the schoolroom. Nothing is known of her yet, except that her governess went mad and drowned herself not long ago. I'm sure she's abominable. So, you see, there was really very little left for poor Sebastian to do except to be sweet and charming. It's when one gets to the parents that a bottomless pit opens. My dear, such a pair. How does Lady Marchmain manage it? It is one of the questions of the age. You have seen her? Very, very beautiful. No artifice. Her hair just turning grey in elegant silvery streaks. No rouge, very pale, huge-eyed. It is extraordinary how large those eyes look, and how the lids are veined blue where anyone else would have touched them with a fingertip of paint. Pearls and a few great star-like jewels, heirlooms and ancient settings. A voice as quiet as a prayer and as powerful. And Lord Marchmain, well... A little fleshy, perhaps, but very handsome. A magnifico, a voluptuary, Byronic, bored, infectiously slothful. Not at all the sort of man you would expect to see easily put down. And that Reinhardt nun, my dear, has destroyed him, but utterly. It daren't show his great purple face anywhere. He is the last historic, authentic case of someone being hounded out of society. Brideshead won't see him. The girls mayn't. Sebastian does, of course, because he's so charming. No one else goes near him. Why, last September, Lady Marchmain was in Venice, staying at the Palazzo Foglieri. To tell you the truth, she was just a teeny bit ridiculous in Venice. She never went near the Lido, of course, but she was always drifting about the canals in a gondola with Sir Adrian Pawson. Such attitudes, my dear, like Madame Ricamier. Once I passed them and caught the eye of the Foglier gondolier, who, of course, I knew, and, my dear, he gave me such a wink. She came to all the parties in a sort of cocoon of gossamer, my dear, as though she were part of some Celtic play or a heroine for Matterlink, and she would go to church. Well, as you know, Venice is the one town in Italy where no one ever has gone to church. Anyway, she was rather a figure of fun that year. And then who should turn up in the Maltons' yacht but poor Lord Marchmain? He'd taken a little palace there, but was he allowed in? Lord Malton put him and his valet to know a dinghy, my dear, and transhipped him then and there to the steamer for Trieste. He hadn't even his mistress with him. It was her yearly holiday. No one ever knew how they heard Lady Marchmain was there. And do you know, for a week, Lord Malton slunk about as if he was in disgrace. And he was in disgrace. The Principessa Foliera gave a ball, and Lord Malton was not asked, nor anyone from his yacht. Not even the Pagnoses. How does Lady Marchmain do it? She has convinced the world that Lord Marchmain is a monster. And what is the truth? They were married for fifteen years or so, and then Lord Marchmain went to the wall. He never came back, but formed a connection with a highly talented dancer. There are a thousand such cases. She refuses to divorce him because she is so pious. Well, there have been cases of that before. 
Usually it arouses sympathy for the adulterer, not for Lord Marchmain, though. You would think that the old reprobate had tortured her, stolen her patrimony, flung her out of doors, roasted, stuffed and eaten his children, and gotten frolicking about, wreathed in all the flowers of Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead of what? Begetting four splendid children by her, handing over to her brideshead in Marchmain House and St. James, and all the money she can possibly want to spend, while he sits with a snowy shirt from at La Rue's with a personable middle-aged lady of the theatre, in most conventional Edwardian style. And she, meanwhile, keeps a small gang of enslaved and emaciated prisoners for her exclusive enjoyment. She sucks their blood. You can see the tooth marks all over Adrian Pawson's shoulders when he is bathing. And he, my dear, was the greatest, the only poet of our time. He's bled dry, there's nothing left of him. There are five or six others of all ages and sexes, like wraiths following her around. They never escape when she's had her teeth into them. It is witchcraft. There's no other explanation. So, you see, we mustn't blame Sebastian if at times he seems a little insipid. But then, you don't blame him, do you, Charles? With that very murky background, what could he do except set up as being simple and charming? particularly as he isn't very well endowed in the top story. We couldn't claim that for him, could we, much as we love him. Tell me candidly, have you ever heard Sebastian say anything you have remembered for five minutes? You know, when I hear him talk, I am reminded of that in some ways nauseating picture of bubbles. Conversation should be like juggling. Up go the balls and the plates, up and over, in and out, good solid objects that glitter in the footlights and fall with a bang if you miss them. But when dear Sebastian speaks, it is like a little sphere of soap suds drifting off at the end of an old clay pipe, anywhere, full of rainbow light for a second, and then, foot, vanished, with nothing left at all. Nothing. And then Antony spoke of the proper experience of an artist, of the appreciation and criticism and stimulus he should expect from his friends, of the hazards he should take in the pursuit of emotion, of one thing and another while I fell drowsy and let my mind wander a little. So he drove home, but his words, as we swung over Magdalen Bridge, recalled the central theme of our dinner. Well, my dear, I've no doubt that first thing tomorrow you'll trot round to Sebastian and tell him everything I've said about him. And I will tell you two things. One, that it will not make the slightest difference to Sebastian's feelings for me. And secondly, my dear, and I beg you to remember this, though I have plainly bored you into a condition of coma, that he will immediately start talking about that amusing bear of his. Good night. Sleep innocently. But I slept ill. Within an hour of tumbling drowsily to bed, I was awake again, thirsty, restless, hot and cold by turns, and unnaturally excited. I had drunk a lot, but neither the mixture, nor the chartreuse, nor the Mavrodaphne trifle, nor even the fact that I had sat immobile and almost silent throughout the evening instead of clearing the fumes as we normally did, in puppyish romps and tumbles, explains the distress of that hag-ridden night. No dreams distorted the image of the evening into horrific shapes. I lay awake and clear-headed. I repeated to myself Antony's words, catching his accent soundlessly, and the stress and cadence of his speech, while under my closed lids I saw his pale, candlelit face as it had fronted me across the dinner-table. Once, during the hours of darkness, I brought to light the drawings in my sitting-room, and sat at the open window, turning them over. Everything was black and dead still in the quadrangle. Only at the quarter hours the bells awoke and sang over the gables. I drank soda water and smoked and fretted until light began to break and the rustle of a rising breeze turned me back to my bed. When I awoke, Lunt was at the open door. I let you lie, he said. 
I didn't think you'd be going to the corporate communion. You were quite right. Most of the freshmen went, and quite a few of the second and third year men. It's all on account of the new chaplain. There never was corporate communion before, just holy communion for those that wanted it, and chapel, and evening chapel. It was the last Sunday of term, the last of the year. As I went to my bath, the quad filled with gowned and surpliced undergraduates drifting from chapel to hall. As I came back, they were standing in groups, smoking. Jasper had bicycled in from his digs to be among them. I walked down the empty broad to breakfast, as I often did on Sundays, at a tea shop opposite Balliol. The air was full of bells from the surrounding spires, and the sun, casting long shadows across the open spaces, dispelled the fears of night. The tea shop was as hushed as a library. A few solitary men in bedroom slippers from Balliol and Trinity looked up as I entered, then turned back to their Sunday newspapers. I ate my scrambled eggs and bitter marmalade with the zest which in youth follows a restless night. I lit a cigarette and sat on, while one by one the Balliol and Trinity men paid their bills and shuffled away, slip-slop, across the street to their colleges. It was nearly eleven when I left, and during my walk I heard the change ringing cease and, all over the town, give place to the single chime which warned the city that service was about to start. None but churchgoers seemed abroad that morning. Undergraduates and graduates and wives and tradespeople, walking with that unmistakable English church-going pace, which eschewed equally both haste and idle sauntering. Holding, bound in black lambskin and white celluloid, the liturgies of half a dozen conflicting sects, on their way to St. Barnabas, St. Columba, St. Aloysius, St. Mary's, Pusey House, Blackfriars, and heaven knows where else besides, to restored Norman and revived Gothic, to travesties of Venice and Athens, all in the summer sunshine going to the temples of their race. Four proud infidels alone proclaimed their descent. Four Indians from the gates of Balliol, in freshly laundered white flannels and neatly pressed blazers, their snow-white turbans on their heads, and in their plump brown hands bright cushions, a picnic basket, and the plays unpleasant of Bernard Shaw, making for the river. In the corn market, a party of tourists stood on the steps of the Clarendon Hotel discussing a road map with their chauffeur, while opposite, through the venerable arch of the Golden Cross, I greeted a group of undergraduates from my college, who had breakfasted there and now lingered with their pipes in the creeper-hung courtyard. A troop of Boy Scouts, church-bound too, bright with coloured ribbons and badges, loped past in unmilitary array, and at Carfax I met the mayor and corporation, in scarlet gowns and gold chains, preceded by wand-bearers, and followed by no curious glances, in procession to the preaching at the city church. In St. Aldate's I passed a crocodile of choir-boys, in starched collars and peculiar caps, on their way to Tomgate and the cathedral. So through a world of piety I made my way to Sebastian. He was out. I read the letters, none of them very revealing, that littered his writing table, and scrutinised the invitation cards on his chimney-piece. There were no new additions. Then I read Lady into Fox until he returned. "'I've been to Mass at the old palace,' he said. "'I haven't been all this term, and Monsignor Bell asked me to dinner twice last week, and I know what that means. Mummy's been writing to him.' So I sat bang in front where he couldn't help seeing me and absolutely shouted the Hail Marys at the end, so that's over. How was dinner with Antoine? What did you talk about? Well, he did most of the talking. Tell me, did you know him at Eton? He was sacked in my first half. I remember seeing him about. He always has been a noticeable figure. Did he go to church with you? I don't think so. Why? Has he met any of your family? Charles, how very peculiar you're being today. No, I don't suppose so. Not your mother, at Venice. I believe she did say something about it. I forget what. I think she was staying with some Italian cousins of ours, the Foglieri's, and Antony turned up with his family at the hotel and there was some party the Foglieri's gave that they weren't asked to. I know Mummy said something about it when I told her he was a friend of mine. 
I can't think why he would want to go to a party at the Folieres. The princess is so proud of her English blood that she talks of nothing else. Anyway, no one objected to Antoine. Much, I gather. It was his mother they thought difficult. And who is the Duchess of Vincennes? Poppy? Stephanie. You must ask Antoine that. He claims to have had an affair with her. Did he? I dare say. I think it's more or less compulsory at Cannes. Why all this interest? I just wanted to find out how much truth there was in what Antony said last night. I shouldn't think a word. That's his great charm. You may think it charming. I think it's devilish. Do you know he spent the whole of yesterday evening trying to turn me against you and almost succeeded? Did he? How silly. Aloysius wouldn't approve of that at all, would you, you pompous old bear? And then Boy Mulcaster came into the room. I thought about ending that passage a little earlier, um, ending it when Anthony Blanche and Charles Ryder go their separate ways, but I think, in fact, the most significant part of that section is when Charles Ryder goes to talk to Sebastian. And Charles Ryder says, is all of this stuff that Anthony Blanche told me about you true? And Sebastian's like, oh, what do you mean? No, no, probably not, actually, no. Ah, isn't Sebastian, isn't Anthony Blanche funny? But then there's... The, those two final things that Anthony Blanche told him about go exactly as Anthony Blanche said, right? Charles Ryder says, Anthony Blanche spent a whole evening trying to turn me against you and he nearly succeeded. And Sebastian's like, oh, how amusing. It doesn't change how he feels at all, which is exactly what Anthony Blanche predicted. And then the second thing is, he instantly starts talking about that amusing little bear of his, which is exactly what Anthony Blanche said he would do. And then there's a third and final thing a damning thing about Sebastian, which is that Boy Mulcaster comes out of Sebastian's rooms. And Boy Mulcaster is the guy who tortured Anthony Blanche and dragged him down to the fountain and betrayed Anthony Blanche and made him feel like shit. So it's just so depressing that Sebastian is totally fine being friends with him. And even though Anthony's sort of monologue about uh, about um, Sebastian's family was a bit insane right and it's spanned things like oh did the teenage girl have her governess drive her governess insane or or um is julia incestuous or does sebastian's mother suck the blood of men uh all of that is you know patently untrue but what is true is that sebastian is a bit like bubbles things kind of bounce off him and there isn't if there isn't depth it's not a depth you can access he's not loyal He's perfectly happy to be friends with Boy Mulcaster and with Anthony Blanche, as if those two things can sit comfortably together, when they can't. They shouldn't be able to. If you actually cared about Anthony Blanche, you couldn't be friends with Boy Mulcaster. And I think that's what's so distressing to Anthony Blanche, is that I think Anthony Blanche could really care about Sebastian. He feels like one of the few characters in the book who has the potential to really deeply care about someone, and yet somehow that's always stymied. He's never really able to. So I find that ending part very significant and important in the, in the whole Anthony Blanche tragedy. It's only a side story, right? He's such a minor character. And yet, to me, I think he's just one of the most compelling parts of the whole book. And, you know, to tie this back to fan fiction, uh, he, yeah, he's a big inspiration for me. Uh, my Blades is often based on him or um, I have a fic called Adventures of a Suicidal Gentleman where Draco uses the same technique that Anthony Blanche uses where he like whenever someone tries to bully him he's like "Ooh, yes meaty boys 
um, which someone in the comments called me out on, by the way. Someone, someone in the comments was like, he's Anthony blanching it. I was like, yes, my readers have found me. <laughs> I do want to speak a little bit about, um, I think it's a little troubling to really like Evelyn Wall. Uh, quite apart from the fact that he was like crazy anti-Semitic and generally quite pro-fascism and just a nasty person. I think that um, books like Brideshead, in a way, they remind me of um, Gone with the Wind. In that Gone with the Wind, uh, you know, is a, is a good movie. It's a good book, but it continues to promote the glamorization of a form of evil. And I think that that's sort of true of Brideshead. Um, in the 80s, they made a TV show of Brideshead. And the TV show was so successful that it um, like revitalized elitism in Britain. So for instance, um, a lot of the sort of awful secret societies had fallen out of favor in Oxford. And after this TV show came came out, uh, they all kind of burst back up again, right? Um, so actually, when I was younger, I <laughs> I still liked Brideshead, but I was faintly embarrassed by it. Like I wouldn't have spoken about it. Um, I think probably the only reason I'm sort of speaking about it now is that I'm sort of living in exile in America and it makes me nostalgic. But uh, I definitely think you want to read it with a critical eye because it is an elitist book. Everything about it is elitist. And everything about Evelyn Wall was elitist. He was just a huge, huge snob. So worth thinking about the role of the working class when you're reading the book and thinking about how invisible they are, how they don't seem to really exist to anyone in the book. It's as if England is made up of, you know, <laughs> Downton Abbey and nothing else. This has been kind of a long episode, so I'll wrap things up. But I wanted to leave you with one or two anecdotes about Evelyn Wall being trash. Um, one time he went to have dinner with the Russian composer Stravinsky. Stravinsky composed The Rites of Spring. So it was, it was uh, 1949 and they were having dinner together. And Stravinsky writes this description of the evening in which war just seems like just the biggest grump in the world. So Stravinsky started the conversation in French because he thought they could both speak French and war pretended he couldn't understand him when in fact he could, as was revealed by war's wife, who was like, oh yeah, no, he can speak French. And war was just like, no, I can't. <laughs> so that was the first thing. And then every single thing Stravinsky tried to talk about, war just shot down. So for instance, Stravinsky talk about the American constitution and war was like, I'm a Tory. A Tory is a British conservative. But the point is that that war was behaving as though this was something that uh, Stravinsky should have been aware of and should never have brought up the American constitution because it's very insulting. Stravinsky, at this point, who was, after all, an incredibly famous composer, brought up music because he thought, surely that's a decent thing for us to talk about. And war told him that music was a physical torment to him <laughs> uh, at that point. Um, Stravinsky kind of just gave up. In fact, the only thing War could speak about was US burial customs. And uh, Stravinsky says, and here his impressive technical knowledge suggested that he was gathering material for a doctorate on mausoleums. So that's the only thing he would talk about. Death. Um, and then my last and favourite anecdote about Evelyn War is uh, from his son Oberon War. Basically, during World War II, uh, because of rationing, no British child had eaten a banana for years. And so when the war ended, to celebrate, the British government gave every child in Britain one banana. And even on war gathered his family round the dinner table 
and took all three of his children's bananas <laughs> and cut them up and ate them in a bowl of cream and sugar in front of his children. <laughs> And what I love about this story is that I can imagine enjoying one or even two bananas in a bowl of cream. But I really think at about the third banana, he must have just been plowing through because he knew he had to eat all three. <laughs> yeah, so we know this anecdote because of Oberon's uh, autobiography. And he writes at the end of this anecdote, he's like, that was the day I lost all respect for my father. <laughs> he just sounds like uh, he was a dreadful person. Although interestingly, I think someone pointed out that... Um, you know, it's kind of delightful to know him as this awful monster. But he had a very wide group of very loyal friends. So I I think he must have been good to some people. Um, I think once he decided you were worthwhile, he was a very good friend. But um, I think he, he didn't seem interested in being friends with anyone who wasn't a lord or a lady. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I know it's been quite long and unrelated to fanfic. I do think it has some fairly fanfic-y elements to it. Um, obviously, you know, it's queer literature, uh, but it's also sort of feelsy, uh, but it's upsetting, right? So uh, fanfiction is more about comfort, and I would say Brideshead Revisited is not a comforting book. But um, I really enjoyed talking about it. I have had to rein myself in. I could talk about this a lot more, so uh, <laughs> I know it seems long and self-indulgent, but it really could have been worse. Um, next week, I will continue releasing the next episode of Teenage Wasteland, and you can find me on Instagram at letthemeetbooks with underscores instead of spaces, or you can join my newsletter uh, at com. I'd be really interested in any feedback on episodes like this. Um, you can get in touch with me on the comments on the AO3 post for Teenage Wasteland or on Instagram. Um, so let me know what you thought. Uh, be nice. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for listening and I'll see you guys all next week.